hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 15, The Graduate. Super 70 is a podcast meant to play along with the film we are discussing. You don't have to, though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I'm sorry this episode was so delayed. I blame Joe West, who made a bullshit fan interference call in Game 4 of the Astros-Red Sox pennant race shortly after which I lost the power of my voice. It's back now, and unfortunately, so is Joe West. I will be using the digital version of The Graduate found on Amazon Prime for $14.99. Yes, it's a steep price for something that's not on your shelf, but I think that you'll like it just the same. You can also rent it for 48 hours for $2.99. It is also, as of fall of 2018, available on Netflix. If you press play on most DVD copies now and on Prime or Netflix now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. We're going to open with Dustin Hoffman in the role of Benjamin Braddock, a college graduate who's coming home after spending four years away at college. The shot of him on the airplane is meant to tip us off that something is wrong, that Benjamin feels out of place. He looks like he's in a coma. He's not paying attention to much. He's not looking around. Everyone else looks like they are in a similar state. But if you look at it, Benjamin's stare is straight ahead. Everyone else looks like something else is grabbing their attention or they are asleep. And it looks like almost like Benjamin is the only one that's awake. And that's our first look at Ben. He looks bored. He looks really distracted. He looks like he might be in a fugue state. He's catatonic. Is he stoic? What's wrong with Ben? And we're going to spend the next hour trying to figure this out. What's wrong with Ben? Now, the walk later is very coy device. You notice that Benjamin is moving from right to left. And this is a very left-leaning film uh, politically. And that's not something that's out of this world to say. That's not something that's going to be shocking or surprising. That's just something that is. Director of photography, Robert Surtees, which I'll be talking a lot about later. This is a left-leaning movie. It's meant to be a left-leaning movie. It's meant to be a liberal movie. And I'm not breaking any ground by saying that. It also looks like he's going against the flow of traffic, right? So we read left to right, not right to left. So it looks like he's moving backwards, not forwards in our mind. But to Benjamin, he's moving forward. And because the wall is so close and we've got this this medium shot, we feel as close to Ben as Ben feels close to the wall. It's meant to feel claustrophobic, like we're cramped, we're crowded. This makes us feel uncomfortable, and we further know that something is wrong. This is coupled with Ben's expression like he's dreading something, like he's in fear, and this further muddles our understanding of the scene. The soundtrack is The Sound of Silence by Simon Agarfunkel, 
which is a counterculture duo that not only provided the soundtrack to The Graduate, but through The Graduate, they provided a soundtrack to the 60s and to the counterculture. And of course, the irony is that the sound of silence is blaringly loud when they play it. And the focus on Benjamin's bag is purposeful. It's metaphorical. It's, it's also traveling right to left. So what kind of baggage does Benjamin have? And you notice, of course, that the baggage is all nice and square. Benjamin leaving the airport in the crowd and the closeness to the tank is further pushing the claustrophobia theme. Note the diver who is more or less trapped in this fish tank. Ben's head is positioned as if he himself is in the tank, like any other creature that's to be observed or doing something for entertainment. Now, The Graduate was written by uh, Buck Henry, who's one of the most successful writers in Hollywood history. And after a lot of TV, he broke through The Graduate before getting, creating the Get Smart TV series, writing the screenplay for Catch-22, What's Up Doc, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. And he touched so much pop culture that today it's hard to reference TV or film at this time without running across them. He adapted The Graduate from the novel by Charles Webb with Calder Willingham, but Buck Henry is mostly credited with this work. This is William Daniels, who plays his father. He sits in front of the camera, obscuring our image of Ben for many reasons. First, we feel the claustrophobia enhanced even more. Second, we feel intimidated by Mr. Braddock because he's cutting us off from looking at Ben unhindered. It's like you want to move your head a little bit to the right so you can see all of Ben. It's like he doesn't care what our viewpoint is. We don't even know what Mr. Braddock's name is. Throughout the movie, we're only given glimpses of his face. And most of the time, he's out of focus. And here, he and his wife, they're even in the dark. And then later, he's hiding behind sunglasses or artifices so far away that we can't distinguish him. And notice here, he and his wife are so close to him, but only Ben is in focus. They're out of focus. Ben's crowded proximity to everyone induces this claustrophobia. Finally, Ben's had so much that he wants to get away, but he can't. As soon as he opens the door to escape, he runs into another one of his friend's parents. And this is where we learn that he was a track star in college. And that comes into play later. Ben runs a lot in this film, literally and metaphorically. He's trying to run right now as fast as he can away from everything around him. And everywhere he goes, he's stopped by yet another old person who can't take their hands off of him. In this way, Ben feels like he's being molested. What do we see of the older generation here? They're not just old, they're gray. They're overweight. And so far we're faced with a very strange notion that we get the idea that everyone wants to talk to Ben about Ben, but Ben. Ben does not want to talk about himself. Ben just wants to be alone. And this would make Ben the only college graduate I have ever met that does not want the recognition of having accomplished a four-year degree. Most young people are narcissistic and self-obsessed, and yet the notion of the graduate is that old people are narcissistic and self-obsessed. So it appears the graduate is trying to turn a popular notion on its head, or else it just doesn't make sense. So how can we account for this, this discrepancy? Mr. McGuire brings Ben out to the pool to talk to him about a job opportunity involving plastics. This is a nod and smile to the youth generation, to whom plastic was a generic term that meant fake and phony. Ben blinks at the word because it appears that Mr. McGuire is plastic, that all of his family's friends are plastic. In fact, perhaps that is Ben's problem. Maybe he lives in a plastic world. Here's another close-up shot. 
right, with the side hallway here. But you can look into the background. There's Mrs. Robinson. We see her for the first time. And if you look at that hallway, it's a miracle that they got down that hallway with a camera down one side. Notice all the darts on the dartboard are missing. No bullseye. We'll get to Benjamin's artwork later. Now enter the wonderful Anne Bancroft as Mrs. Robinson. Bancroft was at the time and for most of her life married to TV comedy writer Mel Brooks, who was at this time finalizing a deal for his movie, The Producers. Ben is put out that Mrs. Robinson barged into his room, sits without asking, lights a cigarette. In effect, he, she's invading and polluting his space. She even taps her ash on his cushion. Now, once again, this goes against convention. Most parents complain about how they can't have nice things because their kids just tear their shit up. But in this case, it's Ben who thinks that the older generation are destructive and have no respect. He also thinks that they're out of touch, although Mrs. Robinson seems to understand that Ben is upset about things in general. And this alludes to the social and political climate of the 1960s, the Vietnam War, Civil Rights Movement, 1967 was the summer of love, after all. Now, earlier you heard Mr. Carlson talk to Ben about his car, the nice European coupe he got as a present from his parents for graduating college. And that's a nice comparison for most of us, but not for Ben. For the entire movie, he seems to barely notice his car except for when he needs it in the finale of the movie. He even gives the keys to Mrs. Robinson, hoping to get her out of his sight here. But Ben seems to not like the car, probably as to what association it has. As Mr. Carlson is saying, Ben could pick up chicks and teeny boppers up in the car. Now, if Ben entered college at 18, that means he's now 22. And thus, he would be five years older than most teenagers in high school. If Ben feels disaffected now, if he feels like he can't relate now, what could he possibly have in common with a teenage girl? This is another clue that there's something wrong with the older generation. The Robinson's house is supposed to be a facade mimicking a medieval castle, a bastion of conservative values of wealth and status that threatened to tear American society apart. And even the main hallway, when we get inside, looks like a castle nave, and it has a gate, and it appears to be a drawbridge that has teeth from the canopy in the backyard. And Mrs. Robinson will take refuge from behind the bar as alcohol is the older generation's drink. And if you're in your 50s, then in the 60s, that means that you remember prohibition. And thus, alcohol is socially acceptable. For young people, alcohol is a passe drug. They prefer marijuana, mind-altering drugs that help you escape. This does look like someplace that El Cid lives. Now, don't take this the wrong way or anything, my dear audience, but... I fucking hate this movie. I had a class, a drama and a film class, and it was a 15-week course, so there were about 30 meetings. And for the first class, we watched The Graduate. In the second class, we talked about lighting. And then the next week, we watched The Graduate again. And then we talked about costumes. And then we watched The Graduate again. And we talked about set design. Then we watched The Graduate again. And so we watched, and we watched, and we watched. And I will be very happy when we're done with this, so I don't ever have to fucking watch this movie again.
Ben asked Mrs. Robinson if she's always afraid of being alone, which is funny because if that's true, then that's the exact opposite of Ben, who only wants to be alone. This scene has the, the famous shot of Mrs. Robinson's legs partially open and the camera positioned under a leg, presumably Anne Bancroft's while looking at Ben accusing Mrs. Robinson of trying to seduce him. And this is where the movie takes its first turn. So there's a lot of bullshit going on in a graduate. A lot of it has to do with visual style, which is directly attributed to Mike Nichols, the director, and Robert Surtees, the cinematographer. This is an important thing to bring up because The Graduate is about the 60s and it's about kids of the 60s, the hippies, the young generation, and all of that. And in the 60s, it went without saying in the counterculture that you couldn't trust anyone over 30. Look at Mrs. Robinson. Not only is she over 30, she's over 50. She looks not just like she's over 50, but she looks ugly. And that person should have gotten an Academy Award. Robert Surtees, cinematographer for The Graduate, he was 61 years old in 1967. He shot his first film in Hollywood in 1943. He did amazing work. 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, a legendary film. Quo Vadis, 1951. Oklahoma, folks, 1955. Ben fucking her, 1959. Mutiny on the Bounty, 1962. Dr. Doolittle, 1967. After The Graduate, he did The Last Picture Show for Peter Bogdanovich in 1971, The Sting in 1973. He had an amazing career, absolutely amazing, and I do not want to slight him in any way, but what is going on in The Graduate visually, stylistically, it's not that it was beyond Surtees, and that's certainly not the case because he shot it, so he was more than capable of it. The guy shot Ben-Hur, he's capable of anything, but the shots were pretty much constructed by Mike Nichols, and they had a point, a very personal point, from the opening shot to the last shot. And this film follows a subject like most films can't. And it's from Nichols' own personal direction. And Surtees had a, a famous saying that he would tell people. He said, I spent my entire career, 35 some odd years, training to shoot one movie, The Graduate. And you're going to see the effectiveness of all of that especially in the montage scenes. But there's lots of slights of hand, lots of tricks of the eye. There's a lot of that stuff going on. Now we're going to move into the virginal bedroom of Mrs. Robinson's daughter, Elaine, whom she worships as all that is good in the world. Ben's track to right, then abandonment to left is bent to make a joke out of his turning away from Mrs. Robinson. The custom door in the background, along with the all-white design of the bedroom, tells you that this is a custom house and thus is upper middle class, or I would say upper, upper middle class, almost balls out rich. Mrs. Robinson's tan line is supposed to be a joke. Obviously, she spends a lot of time in the sun, is never nude. Ben seems incapable of leaving her presence, reinforcing the notion that, like most boys his age, he just wants to get laid and he doesn't really care where it's from. The fact that he goes through with the affair does not speak very highly of his morals or the morals of his generation, but we don't think for the graduate like that. We think only of the 
corruption of the older generation. This is a chicken shit threat here. Mrs. Robinson accuses Benjamin of running away. And it's like he purposefully stays because he's like Marty McFly. He doesn't like being called chicken. Mrs. Robinson is now accosting a boy her daughter's age in her daughter's room. And Benjamin has to juggle being put off that she's trying to seduce him, as she says, in his actual desire to look at her naked. He loses the desire to fight both. He wants both to be seduced by her and he wants to look at her naked. Anne Bancroft has a very diminutive figure. She looks very petite, almost like a Audrey Hepburn type. Mike Nichols had been around Hollywood for a while, but he hit it big with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which took the world by storm in 1966. So The Graduate is the very next year. And if you look at Nichols' career, you'll see an amazing string, right? Like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is about the dissolution of a marriage. It's about old and corrupt people who can't stand up to each other anymore. And it's like a metaphor for America. We're old. We're worse than cantankerous. We're spiteful. We hate each other. And we pretty much deserve all the meanness that we can throw at ourselves. It's a very bleak look at what America is in the mid-1960s. And then The Graduate, which is all about much the same topic, the corrupt older class, the bullshit, and all of that. And then what does he do next? Joseph Heller's Catch-22, which pretty much destroys the myth that we did anything good in the Second World War, or if we did anything good at all, it was attached to us being capitalists, that we got rich off of destroying Europe and Japan for that matter. So there's nothing honorable in World War II. Then there's the fortune in 1975 in which Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty try to fuck Stockard Channing and then fuck her out of every dime she has because that's all men do. Then Silkwood, the movie about a corrupt corporation sentencing people to die. Then there's Heartburn about Meryl Streep married to Jack Nicholson and she's pregnant with her second child when she finds out he's having an affair for, wait for it, Stockard Channing. Then there's Biloxi Blues, the Paul Simon screenplay about the repressive environment of the army and the degenerates who have to live in it. Working Girl, which has so many issues, I'm not even going to try to bring them down in one sentence. Postcards from the Edge, the Carrie Fisher play about how bad Hollywood is. Then Regarding Henry, which says a corrupt lawyer has to be turned into a vegetable in order to do the right thing. The Birdcage, which most people like because it supposedly exemplifies what gay couples are like, but then I hate because I actually know gay couples and they don't act anything like that. And then primary colors, which is, you guessed it, about corruption, this time specifically politics. So I'm sure you get the drift of his career direction. The man has a problem with corruption. He has an issue with authority. Now, Nichols was born in 1931, so by 1967, he was 36. So he's well past the age to not trust. So there's already this conflict of thought process here. But the point is that he was one of the youngest directors in Hollywood. He's half the age of his cinematographer. He's a huge fan of the French New Wave, including Jean-Luc Godard. And by this time, Godard is already famous. His huge influence all over the place. Of course, Breathless, right, 1960. But he's also done A Woman's a Woman, 1961. Another huge influence, Contempt, 1963. Masculine, Feminine, 1966. Godard is still alive. He's still doing work, but his 60s films are seen as the great influence of New Hollywood.
This is Murray Hamilton, who plays Mr. Robinson, a perfect casting choice. Hamilton's entire career screams corruption. He is probably the most famous for playing the mayor of Amity Island in Jaws, the guy who doesn't want to shut down the beaches to save lives because of what it would mean to the economy of the island. He's also played corrupt prison officials in Robert Redford's Brubaker in 1980, an incapable priest in Amityville Horror, an incapable detective in the Boston Strangler, not to mention a long line of bad guys who get caught on national television. Even though he gets to play the husband of Anne Bancroft here, he is caught being the cuckold in this situation, not particularly enviable. We also get that Mr. Robinson is not much of a man. He seems distant, distracted, drunk, and altogether not really knowing what the fuck is going on in his life. He doesn't know how long he's been partners with Ben's dad. He spits his cigar butts in his own house. He's ineffectual. He's not really a man. He's inadvertently telling Ben to go ahead and have an affair with a woman, although there's no way that he could mean his own wife. And he doesn't blink for a second that he could be referring to his own daughter. And we see the piece of shit his daughter almost marries at the end of the film, which he is presumably okay with. So considering how he just asked Ben to fuck his own daughter this weekend, and of course the irony of that is if Ben had just waited to fuck Elaine like her dad had told him to, then none of this film would have ever happened and we would have just gone straight to the credits. Push in, close up. It's not what she sees. It's what she's listening to. Look at the shadows. They're walking to the light. She turns away from the light. And notice she's wearing an animal print. It's hard seeing William Daniels in this film because I'm such a huge fan of William Daniels. He was born in 1927. He's been acting since the 50s. He was in Two for the Road this same year, then brought his Broadway performance of John Adams to the big screen in 1776. He had a very effective bit role in The Parallax View with Warren Beatty in 1974. He just did about every TV show that you could imagine, including the voice of Kit in the Knight Rider TV series. He's probably most well-known for playing Mr. Feeney in Boy Meets World and Girl Meets World, but I love it when he shows up as the commissioner in Blades of Glory. Now see again how he's hiding under sunglasses and a hat here, and it's like his mustache is part of the disguise, like a Groucho Marx or something. And here we're supposed to marvel about how uncaring the Braddocks are. Clearly Ben doesn't want to get into the scuba suit or get into the water, but he does. And this is dangerously close to the dance monkey dance type of mentality. The middle class vision is complete with the barbecue pit and the Pleasant Valley Sunday look that Mr. Braddock is sporting. Deck shoes, white striped hat. And Ben gets into the pool and we're supposed to be, feel sorry for him. We're supposed to feel this alienation that he has. We're supposed to hate his parents. And yet, all I can think of when I watch the scene is how much of a pussy Ben is. He can't stand up to Mrs. Robinson. He can't stand up to his parents. 
He can't even stand up to Elaine, really. He's just a really big pussy. He lets everyone just walk all over him. And I can't feel sorry for someone like that. In the words of Ferris Bueller, you just can't have respect for someone who just kisses your ass. It just doesn't work. Someone who can't even tell his parents no. And some will say, well, he tried to talk to his father. Well, when? Just now when he's already in the wetsuit? No, I never would have put the fucking wetsuit on. So Ben can just sit there in the pool for all I care. He deserves it. Mike Nichols won a Best Director Oscar for this. It was nominated for Best Picture. Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft were nominated for Best Actor and Actress. Catherine Ross was nominated for Best Supporting Role. Surtees was nominated for Best Cinematographer. Buck Henry and Calder Willingham were nominated for the screenplay. It was also up for tons of Golden Globes. And its list of awards are pretty much endless. Now, we're going to cut to the Taft Hotel. And I'm guessing the hotel is named after a president because we're all supposed to think that a large, rich establishment has prestige if it's named after a president. So it's a huge conservative institution. You'll see this exemplified as Ben holds the door open for a very long line of very old and rich people come into the hotel and not giving him any notice, much less the time of day. He also follows two young couples in who look like they're about to get two rooms to go fuck their brains out. And Ben lashes out at his parents for being so cold to him by asking Mrs. Robinson to the hotel, which makes zero sense. But we know this is the case because the phone call overlaps the shot of him in the pool here. So they're directly connected. I feel isolated and alone, so I'm going to call my parents' friend so I can fuck her. I've got a severe problem with the Taft Hotel. I really do. And mostly it's because of this trivia that I found on IMDb, which we know is never wrong. Quote, During rehearsals of Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft's first encounter in the hotel room, Bancroft did not know that Hoffman was going to grab her breast. Hoffman decided to do it because it reminded him of schoolboys trying to nonchalantly grab girls' breasts in the hall by pretending to put their jackets on. When Hoffman did it, director Mike Nichols began laughing loudly. Hoffman began to laugh as well, so rather than stop the scene, he turned away and walked to the wall. Hoffman banged his head on the wall trying to stop laughing, and Nichols thought it was so funny it stayed in the finished film. Here's the long line of old people. Unquote, I meant to say. Now, underneath this quote, there's a line saying 648 out of 651 people found this interesting. Now, that means to me that only three people had a problem with sexual assault. And this is supposed to be a liberal comedy about how corrupt old people are. Well, it sounds like young people suck too. Or are we supposed to give them a pass because this is a, quote, hip, unquote, movie? This is disgusting. 
A guy grabs a woman's breast on camera. The director laughs about it and then leaves the footage in the film. How liberal. This is Buck Henry, by the way, which I recognize when I watched this because I was a fan of Saturday Night Live. Now, supposedly Hoffman also padded and pinched Catherine Ross's butt in the screen test. His excuse was that he wanted to lessen the tension. She got loud about it. He got awkward. And it's this awkwardness that convinced Mike Nichols that he was right for the role of Ben. I think that I would have shown that asshole the door and tell him to keep his hands off the actresses. But then again, this is Hollywood. And Nichols was probably used to that type of locker room behavior. Also keep in mind that Hollywood magic is in play and Bancroft is only six years older than Dustin Hoffman and eight years older than Catherine Ross. William Daniels is only 10 years older than Dustin Hoffman. Hoffman looks so young that when he was called up to casting, the office thought that he was there to clean the windows. So he did. The other side of the story is that supposedly Hoffman tried out for Gene Wilder's role in The Producers and he asked Mel Brooks if he could try out for The Graduate. Brooks let him do it because he thought he was wrong for the role. Supposedly, Robert Redford also screen tested with Candace Bergen for Ben and Elaine, but Nichols did not believe that Redford could pull it off. Ben was a social misfit, and for someone like Redford to portray him would have been out of bounds. Who would believe, for instance, that Redford would have an awkward persona or that he would have problems seducing women? So... Apparently, Redford was too sexy and Hoffman not sexy enough, which made him perfect. I wonder if that problem was ever duplicated for the the opposite gender during casting. More movie lore reports that Gene Hackman, who is a friend of Hoffman's, was cast as Mr. Robinson, but was fired after the first week of rehearsals because... Nichols thought that he was too young. Hackman worked through other casting calls to get cast as Clyde Barrow's brother in Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde, which was shot later the same year. That film is seen as Hackman's breakthrough performance. And Bancroft has reportedly said that men told her for decades that this film was the first film they had sexual fantasies about, meaning her role as Mrs. Robinson. I don't even know what to say to that. And I don't want people to think that I'm naive. I know this is a fantasy machine. I know that Hollywood creates female images for men to fantasize about. And I don't mean to insinuate that Anne Bancroft isn't sexy because she is. But it just seems like... Well, there's a lot to unpack here. First, like I said before, she's made up to look not just older but ugly. And so I find it hard that the first fantasy a teenage boy is going to have is this old hag smoking in a leopard print coat while she's laughing maniacally. And holy shit, someone told her that. Like, actually told Anne Bancroft, I masturbated to you. I heard the same thing from Carrie Fisher in an interview. And again, I'm, I'm not some deluded little child. I know the game here. This is a sex selling machine. But I don't get that connection. I never thought of topping off to Carrie Fisher who was the sexiest thing I had in cinema growing up. So jerking off to Mrs. Fucking Robinson never entered my mind. The entire point of this film is that she's old and she's corrupt. And I just don't get that old and corrupt and a sex symbol. It sounds to me that it's the young generation that's corrupt. 
This is the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. It's used as a Taft Hotel here. It's been used in literally hundreds of films. It's where Ghostbusters show up to catch Slimer. Tons of music videos have been shot here. A year after the graduate, Senator Robert Kennedy would be murdered in the kitchen. Notice, of course, how everyone refers to the older generation as Mr. and Mrs. Even while this affair goes on, Ben calls her Mrs. Robinson, right? Oh, Mrs. Robinson, right there, Mrs. Robinson. Do it to me, Mrs. Robinson. That sounds really sexy, doesn't it? And all the children are called by their first name. So, obviously, a generation gap. Man, this film is so fucked up. So, Mrs. Robinson first noticed that she doesn't look any better when she shows up. And second, notice that she's wearing a leopard coat. She wears a lot of animal skins in the film. So, Who's the animal and who's being hunted? It's very cross. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Lots of things in this movie don't make sense. She's the hunter, not the prey. The first act is over now that we're at the hotel. And you'll see The Graduate is, like most movies, it's organized into three acts. And we're about a half hour in and the first act is over. Now comes this excruciatingly long sequence. It's further divided into three sections in the second act. The first section is the affair, the second section is the montage, and the third section is the sing and dance around taking Elaine out. And the titties come out in about an hour. And the entire point of this this whole sequence, the next 10 minutes, is to showcase just how uncomfortable Benjamin is. He is unbelievably naive. It's not that he doesn't want to do it. It's just that he's not sure if it's the right thing to do. He thinks it's wrong to do despite the fact that that's what he wants to do and if you were to remove Ben and put in say Elaine with Mr. Braddock what would you do would you tell Elaine to get the hell out or would you tell Elaine go ahead it's okay to sleep with Ben's dad isn't that the plot of American Beauty so this is wrong don't do this. They're all under age, of age, mind you, not underage, of age. Everyone is legal. But the moral objection to this is very profound, and this makes the uncomfortableness here really ring true. The sequence is truly equal. And that's the only one point that Nichols is trying to make, or Buck Henry for that matter, who, if, if you're on your toes, you knew that that was the hotel clerk before I told you. Now, you can write this and you can read this, but to see it acted out is something. Mrs. Robinson wants to get down to business right away, and Benjamin is going back and forth like someone who's trying to avoid the situation. This is visual peer pressure at its finest, and the only way that he can actually perform is if Mrs. Robinson degrades him first and questions his stamina and accuses him of being a virgin. In this day and age, mind you, to accuse a man of being a virgin is to strip away his masculinity, so... She went straight for the balls. And that's not something that you could do the other way around with. Would a man corner a younger woman in a hotel room and say, well, if you're a virgin and you're not used to fucking, then I can understand if you can't take your clothes off. That wouldn't go over very well at all. I'm meaning our judgment of that exchange. That would backfire. But here that's acceptable to do. And to emphasize the right and the wrong that's going on here, you're going to have to constantly see the lights go 
on and off, starting pretty much now. And it's going to get even more striking after the montage. And the purpose of it is going to switch. So Benjamin here is basically trying to hide. So he doesn't turn the lights on when he gets into the room. She does. And he's going to turn them off again. Right? And it's to the point that Mrs. Robinson thinks that it's funny. She watches him and leers at him. And she thinks that he's being a funny little boy. And look at her expression when she blows the smoke after the kiss. Right? As a predator, that's what she's thinking. He's trying to hide his despicable act, and she just doesn't care. She couldn't give a shit. But then after the montage, watch the situation reverse. He's going to be constantly turning the lights on, and she's the one who wants them off. And that's when they start talking about the heavy shit. Mrs. Robinson, Mr. Robinson, getting laid in a Ford, getting knocked up with Elaine, having to marry a piece of shit because there was no such thing as birth control in the late 40s. And here's the joke about her wanting wood or wire in the closet, right? And Benjamin thinks that he's figured her out. And he pretty much has. In one fucking conversation, he's got her nailed. Now, obviously, Mrs. Robinson is an unhappy person. You can see it in every take. You really see it when her husband barges in and starts to pimp his daughter to Benjamin. And you can see it here. Adultery is a very strange topic in our society. It's extremely common. And we treat it as if it's one of the worst evils in our society. Divorce back then wasn't easy. I've covered that in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and we touched on it in Mildred Pierce. But to stay married to someone who looks like Murray Hamilton, who drinks like him, they all drink. They all look like alcoholics. And Mrs. Robinson is bitter. She's very bitter, and she only gets worse. And you get this idea, when they're talking about art particularly, you get this idea that Mrs. Robinson sold herself. She got married probably too early. But what was that back then? Nothing probably. Everybody married young. And she was someone who had dreams, who had ambitions, who had a future. And what did she become? This embittered old woman. Today we'd call her a MILF. But back then, you know, it looks like she used to be somebody. And she had all of these hopes and dreams. And now those hopes are gone or they were destroyed somehow. And her life did not turn out like she wanted. Or maybe she knew, but couldn't stop it. And... This is her acting out. This is her dealing with the fact that she bargained her life away. She bargained away the experience of being alive for the appearance of it. Because if you look at her house and you look at her clothes, she looks like she's had a good life. But she doesn't think so. She doesn't act like she's had a good life. The only time that we see her, she's smoking. She's drinking. She's never smiling except to cackle at Ben for guessing that she is seducing him. Let's look at the affair montage. Cue the sound of silence. What do we see? Open up our eyes. The swimming pool. Water being used as a motif to convey isolation. Right? Sunglasses. Why? Because there's a sun out dummy. Or because he wants to shut himself off from the world. Hello, darkness, my old friend right? 
Then we have a series of images linked by a very clever transitional device or devices that show us the emptiness of his life, right? He's gonna be walking around without direction. His house is empty. The pool is empty. The hotel is empty. There's lots of staring. And as the montage goes on, you'll see that there's less and less distinction between the hotel and his house. And you'll see the first transition here when he walks into the house, but the cut is away. But the cut away is him coming in through the bathroom in the hotel room. It's an effective technique used to blend Ben's mood to his activities. It's the bland nature of the affair. And it's immediately lost its meaning or luster and it emphasizes the inappropriateness of the affair. Right? Even the song, The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel underlines this. Silence about what? What has Ben not saying? Right? In the house, in the hotel room. Well, he's not saying anything about the affair, that's for sure, but he's also not saying anything to himself about what he's doing and what it means. Now, notice the black around his head, and it helps that Hoffman's hair is black itself. Nichols is going to use that to transition back to his house and back to the hotel, and he's going to surround Ben's head with blackness to match his mood and to use the darkness as a transitional tool. Very, very effective. Very powerful. And hard to pull off anywhere except a montage because you have non diegetic sound being pumped in very loudly. Was that not pretty cool? And he looks at his parents at a distance because that's all that he can do to his parents. They're just as distant to him as James Dean's parents were in Rebel Without a Cause. And that's Ben right now, a rebel without a cause. He doesn't fit in. He knows he doesn't fit in. He wants to fit in somewhere but he doesn't know where to fit in or who to fit in with or who to fit into. And that's why he's with Mrs. Robinson. He fits in her quite nicely. And now we transition back to the hotel. And diegetic sound, right? It's another one of these highfalutin ivory tower film school terms, which means from the story. And this would be everything that you hear in the scene, scene. Ben and Mrs. Robinson talking, for instance. Are there any sounds in the background that we can identify, even if it added a sound in post-production? It can be diegetic if it's from the story. A door closes, focus on Ben, back to his house. And one thing that's always got me were the planes that he has in his room. There are these pictures of these fighter planes from the Second World War. And when the camera pans out, you can see a model that's hanging from the ceiling of his room. And the planes look like they're all tilting down like they're crashing because he's heading for a huge crash. Now, watch the dartboard. Bullseye. What does that tell us? And of course, don't forget the sad clown out in the hallway. 
non-diegetic sound therefore means that it's not coming from the story. The number one most important non-diegetic sound in The Graduate is the soundtrack. Hello darkness, my old friend. If the music were coming from the radio, then that would be diegetic. But since Simon and Garfunkel is coming to us as emotional music meant to persuade our feelings, it is non-diegetic. Now, I've often thought this transition is awesome. Up and down. Out of the pool. On to Mrs. Robinson. William Daniels needs a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy. Now, here's another water motif that's beating the dead horse. Isolation, alienation, entrapment. Ben feels like he's drowning. Ben feels like a fish out of water, etc. And what does Ben say to his dad? He's drifting in the pool. He's not just drifting in the pool. He's drifting through life because like a big pussy, Ben doesn't know what to do with his life. And he feels uncomfortable in what he's doing, but he's too much of a pussy to break the cycle. This isn't an addiction, folks. This is a choice. In these and other shots, they build and they build in a perspective and a camera angle and a soundtrack and all of it focusing on Dustin Hoffman's wussy performance. And it makes you feel an enormous amount of sympathy for Ben. Everybody loves the underdog and he's the ultimate underdog. And you see how all the old people get blurry and you notice that you never really see them in focus except for Mrs. Robinson in the hotel room. And they come from the sun, right? Because the sun is the source of light in the world, but it can also kill you. The sun is dangerous, oppressive. And it's impossible to look at the sun, just like it's impossible for him to look at Mrs. Robinson right here. Masterful sequence. He's of age. I guess that's something. If this were a 55-year-old man hitting on a 24-year-old woman, we would be calling him a predator or Harvey Weinstein. This film wasn't easy to get made. No studio wanted it. It was independently produced. Hoffman is a Jewish guy, almost 30, playing a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. He's nowhere near what he was in the book or the script, but Nichols made him into the character. That's personable. And it's all in the directing and the acting here. Not only can Nichols direct, but Hoffman can act. And The Graduate is one of those movies where the real star is probably the casting director, Lynn Stallmaster, who's still working. Like everybody, Stallmaster did westerns in the 50s, then look at his work in the 60s, The Greatest Story Ever Told, In the Heat of the Night, The Graduate, The Thomas Crown Affair, Fiddler on the Roof, Jeremiah Johnson, Deliverance. His resume is awesome. The scene with the mom is kind of extraneous, but... You know, what do you expect him to do? Of course, he's going to lie to her, but she's too swift. She knows that he's lying and it hurts. But if you were young in the 60s and the argument went among the young people, and and this film argues the point of the young, it's that old people are all corrupt and they all lie all the time. So I don't really understand this contradiction in the film because Ben's lying to his mom. Old people are untrustworthy and corrupt, and yet what is he doing? You know, and... I suppose the person that we're all supposed to blame for all of this is Mrs. Robinson, right? If it wasn't for her, Benjamin would be telling his mother the truth. I mean, that's kind of sh 
shit way to look at it. Because really, what all men do in an uncomfortable situation but blame the nearest woman for their problems. And this is another issue that I have with the graduate. That's what it appears to me is going on. Now, watch Ben's interaction. Well, it works in this scene for sure, but it's, it's pretty much in every scene. You see how he reacts to everyone, and there's this particular part when he's in bed with Mrs. Robinson asking her about her past and her interests. He's got a really interesting performance. And you see how interested he, he is in her. He's more interested in her life than she is, and that's something to say. So he's reaching out. And she's just not there. She doesn't want anything else. And this is actually when we find Ben most interesting in the film, when he's uncovering bits about our antagonist. And this is the point of the film in which you find out that she wanted to be an art student and she got pregnant in the back of a Ford and her life had to stop. So if Ben and Elaine are 22, that means that they were born in 1945. So Mrs. Mr. Robinson either came back from the war and met Mrs. Robinson in college, or he never went to war because he was a student or a factory worker or something. Anyway, it's 1945 and Mrs. Robinson is in college, but she's pregnant now. So the college probably kicked her out and her only choice was marrying Mr. Robinson. That was her only choice. And that's fucked up. And you can see how she looks when she recalls this. She's not happy about it at all. And this is all one shot. And it's full of tricks and trick cuts. It's impressive. I mean, this is the turning point in the whole film. And if there's a middle, it's the scene. And you see the light play as Ben is constantly trying to turn the lights on. She's trying to constantly turn the lights off. And it's a play on truth, right? He's trying to uncover something, and she's trying to hide something. So it's the reverse from what it was before the montage. And really, she's only trying to hide the truth. And the truth is that she's a real person with real problems who fucked up early in her life. And because of the sexist and misogynist world that we live in, she has to pay for that mistake, which is Elaine. The good, pure, innocent Elaine who we'll meet in just a few minutes. And that's what she has to hide. And so I don't see Mrs. Robinson as this corrupt cougar trying to turn the youth movement into a bunch of evangelicals who worship money. I see Mrs. Robinson as the reason why we as a culture failed in the 20th century. And it's because we treated women like Mrs. Robinson. We treated them and we still treat them like second-class citizens. This is a time when the pill was out for just a couple of years, only in some states, when divorce was still something to hang a scarlet letter on, and yet that's not how people look at this film. They look at Ben and his car and his parents' money, and they say, I identify with him. Not the woman who's lost her life due to a fucked-up cultural standard. They identify with the wasp who drives up and down the California coast in his Ivy League graduation present. That's fucked up. Now, someone asked me once here, like, why is Ben focusing on Mr. Robinson's car? Why is the car important? And first of all, it's a generational thing. Back then in America, there were basically three huge automakers, and everyone knew what those three were. Only GM had several different product lines, so you could keep them all in your head. These days, there are so many car makers, 
you see shit on the road and you don't know what the fuck it is. Who makes a Saturn for Christ's sake? And what the fuck is a lot of, but back then it was easier. The other part is the Ford out of all the automakers back then Ford was probably the most proletarian. Ford was the first car manufacturer to double their workers' salaries so they could make customers out of their employees. Ford was typically the cheapest car of any type that you could buy. So declaring that she got busy in the back of a Ford, it means that she, or rather Mr. Robinson, they came from rather austere means. And in 1945, you know that Ford wasn't built in 45 because they didn't build cars during the war. They didn't build anything for domestic use during the war. They only built war material. So at the youngest, that car was maybe a 1941 and and very likely older. What's the point of mentioning that? Well, that's why Ben is so astounded by it. It sounds like a footnote, but like I mentioned in my last two podcasts, the war is fucking everywhere. As a preface or an ending, as a footnote, it's just everywhere. It's in Starship Troopers. It's in A Hard Day's Night. It's in The Third Man. Movies that you wouldn't even think were about the war, and you see shit about the war. The Shining, Ivan Terrible Part 2. Now, Ben just called her broken down alcoholic, and you see her reaction there. The light is on, so we know it's the truth, and the truth hurts. But also, because the light is on, she's going to play a huge guilt trip on Benjamin and make him feel bad that he's called her that, And this is another issue that I have with the film. It shows her as this master manipulator. Well, what the fuck did Ben think that he was doing when he got into this room? And who's paying for this room anyway? Let me guess. Ben's parents. He doesn't have a job. That's a separate topic. So our two biggest female roles in The Graduate are the master manipulator and her daughter, the innocent virgin. That's our choice. We can't have a liberated woman who's sure of herself and is more than arm candy or oversexed. That's not possible. There are stereotypes and tropes here in Hollywood, and we must absolutely conform to those roles. No exception. Broken down alcoholic or the daughter who likes to act like she's a 12-year-old girl. Those are our choices, and that's fucked up. Here's the second famous scene with the leg, which is different than the leg on the cover of the posters. Supposedly was Linda Gray's leg, not Anne Bancroft's, for all you Dynasty fans. And you're meant to pull to the left you see how she's in focus this is deep focus all the way around this room this is a pivotal scene really Nichols really shows his experience here remember he's a a poor Jewish refugee from Nazi Germany he directs two of Neil Simon's plays on Broadway both are smash hits and Virginia Woolf got four Oscar nominations for acting Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress. That's impressive, no matter how you cut it. And he's known as this guy that you want directing people, right? Leave all the sets to the producer. And now we're in the middle of the film, and the second act, as it were. And the huge question is, how is he going to get out of this affair with Mrs. Robinson? How is he going to dump this plastic wife, this 
broken down alcoholic. Well, he's going to meet a girl. And that's how he's going to do it. And that seems to me to be completely unfair to her. So all he had to do, if I'm reading the dating scene with Elaine right, was to find someone his age. Well, someone trendy, you know, more with it, more liberal, let's say. Oh, maybe she goes to Berkeley, that kind of person. Well, didn't he just get out of a fucking college? Wasn't he just in a college surrounded by bright, beautiful, liberal, supposedly women? So further confusion on my part. And Elaine at this point just becomes a MacGuffin. She's the thing that we need to get Ben off of her mother. Not exactly class A character development. Now, by this point, we're almost at an hour, and we have been presented with a laundry list of Ben's problems. What's wrong with Ben? He doesn't feel right. Well, why doesn't he feel right? Well, he's conflicted about the world. Well, what does he want to do with about it? Well, he doesn't know. He feels lonely. So then he has an affair with an older woman. Okay, there. That's just not working out. Okay, so let's get him out of that relationship. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, we'll just throw in the daughter. Okay, well, that works, but we don't really expect that to happen, do we? I mean, he's fucking her mother. Well, it'll be a struggle, but it'll work out fine. You get where I'm going with this? Like, this is what they said in the pitch room. This this was the question and answering session between the producer and Buck Henry. Ben's problems are pretty undramatic. In fact, that he's, he's not very interesting. And as the film goes on, his problems may become more and more complicated, but they are no more interesting. In fact, they're getting abysmal to care about. And the minute Elaine pops up, we're supposed to care about her as the answer to all of his ills. And how often is that really the case? And the pan to Mrs. Robinson is supposed to indicate her turn as well. Not a pan, it's a push-in. She's still the hunter, and we can tell by the afghan she has on, right? She's focusing on her worst nightmare, the one thing that she told Ben he couldn't do. Notice Mr. Robinson using a bottle that looks like a, a priest or something to pour his whiskey. The fish on the wall indicating Mr. Robinson's boring life. He's not even paying attention. And who is that on the TV? It looks kind of like Robert Kennedy. The Garden of Eden is the living room. That's the, the feeling I get from the set design. So this is where all the evil happens, right? It's where Mrs. Robinson seduced Ben. It's where he will fall for Elaine at first sight. And now it's just a countdown until we see Elaine. And she's going to just suddenly appear. A shot that showed her coming into view from the staircase would have made a whole lot more sense to me. Like a classic Steven Soderbergh shot when she comes down the stairs. She's out of focus and then she walks into focus and her beauty is revealed. But nope, boop, there she is. No warning. She's just suddenly there like an apparition and Ben just can't take it. And Mrs. Robinson can't either. Nothing like having a European shift Alfa Romeo to prove that you're a man. Speed is his key here because he wants to get her back ASAP. And this shot is right out of Breathless. 
In fact, you can watch Breathless or A Woman is a Woman or Jules and Jim by Francois Truffaut, and you'll see a lot of shots that looked exactly like The Graduate. As a whole, this does not look like an American film. It looks like a European film. And that makes sense because Nichols is a child of Europe. We identify with European directors probably a lot more than American ones. They're more fashionable, and it proved more popular with The Graduate. In the Heat of the Night won Best Picture at the New York Film Critics Award. But Nichols got Best Director over Norman Jewison. The MPA chose Bonnie and Clyde. But Nichols won the Best Director Award over Arthur Penn. And through all of that, my favorite quote of Nichols was this. He said, critics are like eunuchs at a gangbang. They must truly be ignored. And speaking of gangbangs... Now, this scene has always puzzled me. It's like the scene in Taxi Driver, which might come from this for all I know. When Travis Bickle takes Betsy to see a porno, there are levels in a relationship, in any relationship. Let's just say that there's 100 levels. And there's, I don't know, they're past one because they know each other. And they grew up together in each other's spheres, so maybe level two. And maybe they get to level three after 10 years. And a family vacation will make that a four. High school, five or six. So let's just say they're at a 10, just to call it something. Taking your date to a strip club in the days before the internet is more like an 80. It's above barebacking, but it's below anal. Know what I mean? And this is, I mean, it's beyond insulting. It may be funny. It might be very funny. But it's fucking insulting as shit. And there is no reason why. She would ever go into that club. No reason at all, especially in 1967. That's a bunch of horse shit. And then we're supposed to buy her as this innocent young thing, but clearly she knows what a club is that she's in, and she followed him in knowing it, what she was getting into. It's fucked up, the whole scene. It's very misogynist. The intent is very disturbing. And how she ever gets over that or forgives him for that is beyond me. 25 years into the future, dad... Tell me about your first date with mom. Well, I took her to a strip club and we hit it off under a stripper who was counter-rotating her tassels. Is that true, mom? Yes, dear. It was love at first sight. At least it was after your father stopped fucking your grandmother. I've been in my share of strip clubs and I've taken female friends into strip clubs and I can tell you we were way past level 10 when we did that and to visually do that to Catherine Ross too sick. One guy I read called her the classy embodiment of a college man's most extravagant fantasies. That might be too much, but she is definitely much more desirable than Mrs. Robinson. And why is that? Because she is, drum roll, younger than her mother. Yes, thank you. Old women out, young women in. And to make everything worse, he tells her he was forced into doing this by his parents, so he's treating her like shit because he's mad at them. Well done, dickhead. And all she wants to do is go home and he's forcing her to hear his bullshit. And then he has the balls to ask her to stop crying. And then he fucking kisses her. What a douchebag. 
So Ben explains that he's a dick because he just doesn't know what to do since he got out of college, to which I say those two things in between your legs are called balls. Get them the fuck out and go get a job unless you want to hang out with Peter Coyote and the diggers, which is perfectly fine by me, by the way, then just man up just a little bit and go sack groceries or deliver pizzas or join a commune or do whatever it is that you think you have to do to be a productive member of society. Because sitting in your pool, eight hours a day, ain't it. Ben is lost and he wants to find himself. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is figuring out how to survive. In this very scene, we know he doesn't know what the path to take. And quite frankly, so what? Many of us don't know what path to take. Some of us are just wandering until we're 40 or later. And this just confirms my belief that Ben is just a pussy. Elaine has more balls than he does. And where did lovebirds go? Ivan, of course, they've been going here since the 50s. It might as well be a Sonic in a small town in Texas. And as if by magic in this drive-in, they patch things up over the most American meal of all time, the burger. And all becomes right in the world pretty quick. Now, he doesn't want to go home to Mrs. Robinson's house. He doesn't think, hey, maybe we can cut this short and then ease into this relationship over the coming weeks. No, he just dives right in and takes her to the same fucking hotel where Buck Henry knows him. No brains. Anything would have been better than the Taft Hotel. They're in Los Angeles, for fuck's sake. This is not the only place that's open this time of night. I'm sure you saw the hippies in the flower power car next to them in the drive-in. In the three years leading up to The Graduate, you had an enormous amount of change happening that was really tearing this country apart. First, there was the Civil Rights Movement, which was interracial, but that broke down into an us-versus-them contest. That was followed by explosive social unrest, including riots all over the country. Secondly, there was the escalation of the the Vietnam War, which fed anti-war activity and the reaction against it. And that got very, very ugly. And finally, you had the rise of the counterculture, which was a direct result of the first two upheavals. And these three actions or reactions happening at the same time produced domestic turmoil that was unprecedented in this country. And it didn't go on for two years or four years. It went on for 10 years. It was long-lasting and it's never been satiated, and it's easy for us to dis- discount these actions now. It's 50 years later, but these were heavy, heavy issues back then. Racial injustice in this country is something that we've always dealt with. It's not over. We're living it every day, and now we're at a point where companies make money off of it. So what does that have to do with a graduate? What does it have to do with anything? Valid question. The graduate is about all of these things, and yet when You look at this film, where is there a black person in sight? This film is about Vietnam. Do you see any of these rich cats burning their draft cards? Counterculture? What counterculture? There's not a single reference to anything current in this film. Ben tells her she's the only person he can stand to be with, and then he kills the engine. Full stop. He's turning his masculinity off, so to speak. Not that I believe he ever had it. And here's his excuse. Painful to watch. Ben's lying to himself the whole movie. He's lied to his parents. He's lied to Mrs. Robinson, his mother. So why stop now? 
not too long after this, Bonnie and Clyde comes out, and that again is a huge film for the counterculture, and I'm absolutely puzzled as to why. Easy Rider makes sense, I get it. FTA, all of that is good. What puzzles me is a film about a couple of criminals who murder people in the pursuit of money. That's what the left paints the right as doing. Capitalists, I mean. So Bonnie and Clyde represent this, the extremist capitalist. Not only do they rob people of money and kill them, they don't even work very hard at it. In essence, the ultimate capitalists. And the film is praised as this strange, fuck-the-system type of movie. It's really weird. I understand that Bonnie and Clyde were fuck-the-system type of people, but I don't understand holding them up to be huge counterculture heroes. I don't get that, and I don't get The Graduate. I understand that under the working system at the time, that getting a counterculture film made was tough gig, so you had to use metaphors. It just looks to me that all of those metaphors really suck. Watch for more water coming so you know more isolation is about to happen. He's about to be super isolated and he's going to do it to himself. And this is where the second act starts to end. Water is not cleansing like in the other films. Here it really means seclusion, loneliness, and at first that doesn't make sense. And then we're shocked to see who but Mrs. Robinson jump in the car and tell him under no circumstances is he to see Elaine. And here Ben makes the first honest decision in the film. He goes straight to Elaine to explain everything. And that should have been the first thing he did in the car. Or he should have just not acted like a dick and bore the brunt. Or he should have gone through with the barbecue. And of course, Elaine is crushed, but the real casualty in this scene, unfortunately, is not Elaine. Elaine is crushed for sure. She runs off, but who does the story and the camera set as the focus of the scene? It's not on Elaine. It's on Mrs. Robinson. Lots of running in this movie. Running in the rain, very dramatic. The last hour is absolutely in contrast to the first hour. Benjamin doesn't go anywhere. Even in the airport, he's on a walk later, right? He stumbles around, he shuffles his feet, he's very inert, lying in bed, lying in a pool. And in the last half of the movie, he's constantly moving, except he's in the car going about the speed of sound. So this scene, it splits the second and the third act, and there's dramatic difference in energy kinetic energy between the first and the two acts now watch how the cinematographer he dramatically pulled Anne Bancroft into focus here and then he slowly pulls Catherine Ross out of focus and then back into focus here and it's like the truth takes a while to set in it's a brilliant move she's absolutely crushed and the whole world just collapses that's an amazing performance by Catherine Ross the door is shut. Benjamin is shut out physically, metaphorically, every way imaginable. Mrs. Robinson is in a corner, literally and figuratively. Pause for effect.
then the focus shifts really fast from Elaine to Mrs. Robinson. And it looks like she's overplayed her hand. It's like she didn't think through her threats. And now she has to live with her daughter knowing that she slept with Benjamin. And at this point, it's just a crush. That's all Elaine and Benjamin have on each other. But this is the 60s. Most people, regardless of popular belief, most people back then didn't actually have sex before marriage. So there's nothing more here than a crush, but that's about to uptick fast because that's what Hollywood can do with a montage. Two things about this montage. The first is Benjamin's increasingly alarming behavior. I remember watching this movie for the first time and thinking, oh, he loves her. How sweet. He's just so dedicated. He's going to work out. It's going to work out because they're destined to be together. Notice the pool is trashed here. It's no longer a place he can go. And then about the sixth or, or tenth time I saw it, I was just, I don't know appalled I just looked at Ben as this stalker and I mean like a stalker if Ben did this shit today he'd be under a fucking restraining order and I mean it there's a lot of these scenes in other films most of them are just ripoffs from the graduate and they're all done the same oh the poor boy he has to win the heart of the girl back oh isn't that all sweet and all I can think about is what a creepy perverted voyeuristic stalker he is and then this over obvious TV close up of the letter cheesy, you know, he must be imbalanced and Benjamin is imbalanced. Okay. Why is he stalking her? And then he decides, Hey, I'm going to Berkeley. And then everything just gets worse. William Daniels looks so happy. Sure shit, he's happy. And in that happiness, we're supposed to be disgusted. We're supposed to look at that and say, oh, that old and corrupt man. What does he know about youth? Fuck him. And yet, isn't that Ben's desire? So here's another contradiction. Mr. Braddock wants Ben to get married and be happy. And when Ben at first moves in that direction, we say, fuck the old man. How dare he push his son towards something that he wants? Then in the end, what do we do? You know Elaine is going to have the wedding annulled. You know that she and Ben are going to get married. And how exactly is that not what Ben or his dad wanted? So that makes no sense. He's, he's seen as someone who's not fit to be a parent because of his ambitions for his son are misguided. This is simply not true. And as far as his dad being corrupt, I mean, come on. His dad probably fought the Nazis for a living. But that's not enough for Ben. Oh, no. Or the viewers, for that matter. Toast is ready. I have driven from L.A. to Oakland before, and I don't care if you're taking the 5 or the 101 there. At no point is there a road that looks like this. There are stretches of the PCH that look like that, in which case Ben is a fucking idiot for taking the PCH to Berkeley. And if he took the 101 out of L.A., he's an extra idiot for taking the San Mateo Bridge. He would have to take a left in San Jose instead of a right. And not just that, but he would have to pass the 84 bridge in Palo Alto. So altogether, Ben is an idiot. 
But this drive is not supposed to be literal. It's supposed to be metaphorical. He's crossing the Rubicon in a very big way, a huge visual way, and we're supposed to get that. And we do. It's effective. It's just stupid. And that drives away from reason very, very fast, as fast as he's driving. You're supposed to get this feeling of, well, he's driving towards the light. He's being enlightened. And wouldn't we all be enlightened if we went to Berkeley? It's enough to make you want to throw up in your European import. Check out this sort of security cam footage of Ben stalking the Berkeley campus. Now, the second thing in these two montages is the liberal use for the next 10 minutes or so of the Scarborough Affair by Simon and Garfunkel. And you should look up those twisted, fucked up lyrics and you should read them and form your own opinion. It fits. It's like the twisted, fucked up mind of a stalker. Almost Hannibal Lecter-like. It makes me a cambric shirt. It picks sage and thyme in the garden. It puts the lotion in the basket. It makes a creepy scene just worse. Absolutely worse. And the fact is it just doesn't let up. It, that it follows Ben through a second montage in Berkeley following her around. Jesus, it's creepy. The song has some anti-war sentiment in it. And that would be, I think, the only mention of it besides Norman Fell's line, which is about to come up. Now, this decision baffles me. It really does. What do we know about Elaine so far? What have you seen? They talked in the car. The next day, she finds out he screwed her mother. And now, he wants her back. We don't know anything about Elaine at this point because Catherine Ross is pretty, we're supposed to just go along with it. Well, not me. And if he gets her back, what the fuck are they going to do? Get a nice 30-year mortgage in Encino or Van Nuys? Ben doesn't even have a job. At this point, he knows Mrs. Robinson better than he knows Elaine. And so we are compelled towards a catastrophic finale. He doesn't care what people think because he knows what he wants. Well, isn't that all of us? But unlike a lot of us, Ben gets away. He escapes with Elaine. And how often do we get to escape our problems? And to escape this conformist society, I suppose he's going to go work as an engineer at a firm for the next 40 years? That's not exactly counterculture. So this is Norman Fell, who's a great actor. He drops the line here about agitation. He doesn't want agitators. He won't stand for agitators. Plenty of those at Berkeley, for sure, 1967. Fell was in the original Ocean's Eleven, PT-109, Bullet, Catch-22. But what I know him from is Three's Company. He was a tail gunner and a bomber in the Pacific in the Second World War. But because he was born in 1924, and his character, I'm guessing, is about 45 at this time, he's one of those people who just can't be trusted by the counterculture. He sees them as agitators, which Benjamin has decided he is not. He's not an agitator. Square that with him in the finale swinging the cross around. Tell me then if he's an agitator or not. So the film is lying to us. So it could be that he's lying again. Ben's just not a trustworthy person in this film. You know, He turns away from Elaine here, doesn't want her to see him while he's stalking her. Pretty amazing, actually. Would you let this guy follow you to the zoo. This movie was so successful, it's hard to comprehend. In the 60s, when a lot of people were turning away from the theater, The Graduate was breaking records at movie houses. 
And unlike most films that peaked the first week in The Graduate had several peaks and went up and down as waves of audiences came to see it. Theaters were afraid to pull it because they thought another wave was coming. And it had this cross following. The New Yorker likened it to The Beatles. Everyone liked it. Old people, young people, middle-aged people. They thought it was funny. And they liked to see the taboo subject play out. Aesthetically, it's a masterpiece. All the cuts and transitions are cutting edge. The New Yorker's article is called why do we love the graduate? Which is funny because I fucking hate it. Great article. You should check it out. And it says this movie is one of those few that can have it both its cake and eat it too, right? With its art. This is an art film and it's a popular movie. And those two things can coincide. The only person who was really kicking out such things back then was Alfred Hitchcock. Yet again, misogyny rules. Now, if you're a Catherine Ross fan, you know that she was in Hellfighters with John Wayne. She famously played at a place in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. She was also a Stepford wife. She's done a lot of horror, Voyage of the Damned, The Swarm. She also did The Final Countdown and, believe it or not, Donnie Darko. She was also a model, so be careful what you search for on Google. Watch Carl walk up here at the zoo with this fucking pipe in his mouth. I don't know what's more bourgeois than a pipe. I guess it's intellectual. I guess it's not right wing. That would be for sure. Kind of a Bolshevik type of thing. It's certainly ivory tower. And notice that Carl looks like, oh, I don't know, kind of Aryan. He looks like a member of the SS to me. Everybody wants to see the primates. See? Pipe. Nice suit. Blue tie. Probably a serial killer. The do not tease sign in the background can be read a number of different ways here. Clearly, Carl is intimidating to both Ben and Elaine. And they're off. And you can see sailors in the background. And then the shot of the gorilla over Ben's shoulder. there and then it's going to be in the reverse shot too so I guess it means he's a monkey's ass and it really does look like those apes are fucking and the lyrics here she once was a true love of mine Carl Smith right clean cut professional looking yuppie before there were yuppies polished prepared Carl is from Berkeley, where apparently he was a member of the Hitler Youth. I mean, the uh, young college Republicans, or at least that's how liberals see the young college Republicans. Berkeley just tore itself apart the past two years. And by December 1967, when The Graduate came out, Berkeley was already war-torn. They had this huge free speech protest, which was hugely successful, by the way. And then they got into the Vietnam War and the Students for a Democratic Society. And I'm just shocked that Carl goes there. And the frat guys are disgusting, which you'll see them later. They tell Ben they want Carl to leave some for the rest of them, which is clearly means sharing a lane. It's like they're still in the 50s or really the 40s, locker room talk and all of that, which is perfectly fine if you're president of the United States. But as a student of Berkeley, it's kind of unseemly. 
So this idea of Carl as this model citizen, well, we gauge people on the company they keep. And if you look at Carl's company, I'm not too impressed. And I understand that Ben and Carl are polar opposites, and that's fine. It's just, that is just not a very good choice, in my opinion. That choice sucks, quite frankly. And here's where we learn that Mrs. Robinson told Elaine that Ben raped her. That's the only way she could sell it. The only spin she could muster. Mrs. Robinson ultimately does not want Ben dating Elaine because she's a fucking cunt. She's jealous, of course. She has a desire for control. Rather than try to understand Ben's position, she resorts to a vengeful attitude. This culminates in her accusation of rape, which is a shallow call for attention and meaning to absolutely stop all parties, including ours, from sympathizing with Benjamin. Now, I want to focus on this right now because I think that's part of the whole movie that really, really sucks. She accuses him of rape to get what she wants. And this is a stereotype of women going back millennia. If a woman doesn't get what she wants, she just yells rape. And therefore, we shouldn't believe any woman who yells rape, especially if she tries to stop a Supreme Court nominee from trying to get appointed. I'm just saying. And when she does this, Mrs. Robinson truly reveals herself as the antagonist of the film. She's just a bitch until now, but after she shouts rape, she's a fucking cunt. And this is a huge problem I have with the film. I really feel that this film not only objectifies women, it really paints them in a bad light. Elaine, too. And I can't see this rape accusation in any other way. And the number of times you hear it versus the number of times it actually is done is appalling. Meanwhile, real rape accusations are just not treated seriously. They did a study in Canada last year and found that sexual assault was just not being investigated as much as it should be, especially in Ontario. And I'm not saying in this scenario we should believe Mrs. Robinson. I'm saying that her fake cry dilutes the power of women who have been treated absolutely horribly. And it empowers shitbags to just say, well, she's just after something. It's an insane idea. It's, it's insane that it's in this film. It's crazy. And then this very C, we see logic destroyed in this film, right? So if Elaine believes a rape allegation at all, then why does she come to Ben's room? So if she's there, then she must not totally believe it. That makes more sense. But then why does she scream? We're led to believe that she screams because Ben has told his side of the story, which sounds more real to her than her mother's. She's forced to accept this side of the story. But why does she accept it? She doesn't tell us. So she goes from being unreasonable and unlogical to reasonable and logical after she screams. So what? She was hysterical, and after the primal scream, she feels better? Now, if you're a student of gender studies, you'll see how problematic that is. The word hysteria is filled with sexist connotations. And the idea that Elaine has a hysterical fit and then gets it out of her system and is now thinking more logically, that's just hard to believe, in my opinion. It's very hard to handle. And then, of course, there's the flip side to this. Ben was acting like a stalker, and that doesn't change after the scream. It just gets worse. He follows her to class, and we'll get into that a little bit. But for now, he's told by his landlord, hey, you know, get out. So he starts packing, and Elaine is trying to have a logical conversation with him right there in the room. And what the fuck does Ben do? He starts shutting down right there and then. He starts ignoring her. Unbelievable. He's He's got her around the corner. He has her believing him. And then when she starts to believe him, he moves the opposite way because the landlord wants him out. I can't talk to you. I, I have to leave. Now, what bullshit scene development is this? 
Or did they just do a bad patchwork of that day's shots to construct the scene? It's completely confusing. And unfortunately, the film only gets worse from here. So the moment Ben throws logic out the window, the, the rest of the logic in the movie just surpasses sheer idiocy. And it's almost getting like a Mel Brooks film unintentionally. Sorry, I didn't mean to impugn the good name of Mel Brooks. Now here she is. She comes back in the middle of the night. Really? Do you go and visit your rapist in the middle of the night? Your mother's rapist? And you notice how in the middle of this hug, Ben slowly starts to walk her back to bed. Watch. It'll just take a second. Oh, they're so sweet. They have their heads together and then she leans on them. Even interlocks her fingers for a bit. There's a little bit of light in the window and it kind of looks like a stained glass window in a cathedral. Hug. Hand on head. She nods, and then what does he do? I swear I'm not making this up. Yep. Slowly take her back to bed. Uh Uh-huh. Just get her into bed, and everything will be fine. What's that about? What, What is he immediately thinking about? Jesus, he's trying to get over an emotional block with him and he's trying to fuck her. Why else does the camera move to the right? Benjamin is nude because he's been bearing his soul to Elaine. Duh. And we've had two women switch here. Mrs. Robinson is out. You saw her about 15 minutes ago and you'll see her for about three more minutes. And one of those is in the finale. Elaine has to carry the rest of the film as a female. And it makes me wonder why, if that is the case, why she was made so flighty. She seems very fickle. I've been told my whole life that this film represents youth. And here's a young woman who is actually considering marrying the man who fucked her mother. I'm not saying that Jack or Jack off or whatever the fuck the Nazi's name is. Uh, Carl, right? I'm not saying that he's the one either. I'm just saying that if she's confused and clearly she looks to be, why in the hell in her confusion is she considering Ben and Carl? If she has any pause for Ben at all, it seems like she should just take a step back and reconsider marrying Carl as well. Now, the final third of the film is upon us, and this starts with the winning of Elaine, and look at him looking all waspy with Shino pants, and the whole point is she's making up her mind between these two men. Well, fuck me, but why? Why does she have to make up her mind? Why does she have to choose between two men? Can't she just say no to both of them? It's like she has no power. Why does she have to basically shut down emotionally to consider which prison sentence she wants for the next lifetime? Why can't she tell both of them to just fuck off and leave her alone? And is there anything wrong with Carl other than the really bad reaction that she sees in the church? So there's just yet another issue that I have with The Graduate. This never made sense to me. And by the way, it's disgusting how Ben relates Mrs. Robinson's experience in the back of Mr. Robinson's Ford in 1945 to how Elaine and Carl might have had experience. Sick. It wasn't in his car. Was it? The comedy that unfolds now is more centered on Ben. We're laughing at him 
before for about the first two thirds of the movie were actually laughing at the parents. We thought they were a joke. They were absurd. They were bullshit. Now we're laughing at Ben. Isn't he so cute? He's talking her around Berkeley. Try stalking a girl around Berkeley now and see where that gets. These two pillars are supposed to box him in, and it's the wrong feeling for the shot. And Mrs. Robinson starts playing, and that doesn't make any real sense because, well, he's in love with Elaine, right? Not Mrs. Robinson. And that goes to a huge question in the film that, again, I don't get. Why isn't there a song about Elaine? Why is there a song about Mrs. Robinson? And the song is supposedly about how corrupt an old society is. And then there's Jolton Joe DiMaggio, who represents everything that America used to be, you know, because that's the problem. America wasn't great anymore in 1967. So they needed Joe DiMaggio back so he could make America great again. And Mrs. Robinson initially was just a three-letter placeholder. Her name didn't even mean anything. Simon decided to use the name because it was the name of the woman in the film. It really had nothing to do with all these heavy issues. It was insinuated after the fact. Now, you notice that Ben has dumped his suit that he was perpetually wearing from pretty much the very first shot. Nothing is more conforming than a suit, right? So later you'll see the more laid-back dress, which includes the sunglasses. Only squares wear suits now. Squares like, you guessed it, Mr. Robinson, who, like a corrupt old man, is now threatening Ben with legal action because that's what corrupt old people do. They sue. Young people, well, they fall in love. They're action-oriented. And I'm sure that you noticed he stopped shaving in the previous scene. That was a tip-off too, right? And while we're on the subject, did you not see that Ben just dropped $1,000 on a diamond ring and an engagement present and who knows what else for Elaine? Isn't that like the new youth? They're not materialistic at all. And where did Ben get all this money to buy Elaine a diamond ring and flowers and God knows what else in package? Maybe selling plastics? When did he get a job? We know he didn't sell his car because we're about to see him put 1,500 miles on it. I'm guessing he got all of this money from his corrupt and old parents. Now we've been treated to all of these shots of Ben walking alone in wide spaces, but somehow he's impossibly close to us, allowing us to empathize with him, supposedly. And now that's about to kick into overdrive. The camera's gonna pull away, way back. And we're shocked to learn in the next scene that Elaine has fled the coop. Mr. Robinson jumping over the bed. The attic is no longer a cathedral where spiritual promises are made. Norman fell. What a great guy. Here, I'll just buy you off with money. No, I don't want your money. So the old and corrupt don't want the money because they have values. Another thing that doesn't really quite make sense. Great camera drop and shot in around the staircase, out the door. Close up, reverse shot. The message comes from down the hallway. 
Elaine's gone. And I have to ask, of course, if she decided to drop Ben for a life with Carl, fine. But why doesn't she just go through the wedding if that's the case? So a little more confusion. And thus begins Ben's insanely unstoppable ultra-kinetic sprint to stop Elaine from getting married. Now, this is straight out of Hollywood, the runaway bride, right? It's, it's reused from the 30s and the 40s. It's a popular sub-genre. The, the only difference between those and The Graduate is in The Graduate, Elaine really does marry Carl. Spoilers. Ben's too late. Supposedly, Catherine Ross wore her own clothes for the film because Nichols thought it made her look more like the girl next door. More normal, I suppose. And I'm guessing that's accepting the wedding dress. Although I'm also guessing she wore something similar to her own marriage to... Anyone want to guess? She married the stranger from The Big Lebowski, Sam Elliott. So back on the PCH, and this close-up and all these shots and the music, and it's just supposed to show how determined he is. No one's going to get in Benjamin's way and forcing Elaine to do what Ben wants to do. Slightly misogynistic. And in one fail swoop, Ben goes from stalker to intruder. He breaks into the Robinson's house through the Garden of Eden, which is now the Garden of Gethsemane. And you notice that the Simon and Garfunkel cuts out. It's like the band doesn't want to alert Mrs. Robinson that there's an intruder because she might call the cops on Ben. So they shut up. So Simon and Garfunkel are on Ben's side. What sense does that make? I ask you. But like I said before, this movie makes less and less sense as we go along. But who do we find there? Not Elaine. But you guessed it, Mrs. Robinson, of course, in her penultimate appearance. She doesn't even look shocked to see him. That should be a tip-off. She was expecting him. Now, why the hell does this room look like a honeymoon suite? And those gold ropes over the bed, is that some sort of bondage reference? And the bench calls the cops because that's the cool, calculated, manipulating, broken-down alcoholic she is. There's no other explanation. And the entire time I'm thinking, couldn't Ben have called her from Berkeley? Could he not have called someone to have helped him, not even his dad? There's no pay phones in Berkeley. Doesn't Ben have any friends other than Elaine? Is he truly that alone? A five-hour drive in place of a dime doesn't make sense to me. And if that didn't make any sense, you know what makes even less sense? repeating that fucking drive. I remember the first time I saw this and I was riveted, edge of my seat. I couldn't wait to get to the ending because I knew it was going to rock. And that's the power of Nichols and Surtees. Their sheer power of aesthetics this camera is something to behold. Surtees said he spent 30 years training on a shooting graduate. And Nichols pulled every trick out of the bag and Surtees had to keep up. Now that's the I-80 across the San Francisco Bay Bridge. Okay, going through the Yerba Buena Island Tunnel and that tower means he's going from Oakland to San Francisco, which means turn around, you stupid fuck. You passed Berkeley. No wonder you relate to the fucking wedding. And then you realize, even if he was going the right way on the bridge, even if he was going west to east, he still took the wrong turn in San Jose. So not only has been a misogynist, he's a total moron. And here's the young college Republicans who look an awful lot like the Beach Boys. And they're the ones that tell Ben to tell Carl to save a piece of Elaine's ass for them to fuck. As if you hadn't had enough sexism in one movie. And here you have to ask yourself, yet again, there's like 20 guys in this frat house. They don't have a phone? Could he not have called the frat house from somewhere in L.A.? Like his house? Why did he have to drive five hours north to personally go speak to them? I know this is in the days before cell phones, but... 
People weren't different back then. Information was harder to get. You had to track down names like Ben is doing now. But the phone was the phone. Then, as it is now, the universal way to get that information. He didn't have to go to Berkeley. It's meant to come off as fun and determined. But in reality, it's stupid. Look, this is an impressive movie, and it has impressive cinematographer and an impressive director. And I've seen this on the big screen before. When that Alfa Romeo comes out of the tunnel, it's impressive. It's a, it's a wow moment. It's Ben driving towards his freedom, right? Coming out of the tunnel. And it absolutely makes no sense at all. All we have, other than Hollywood magic, to tell us things are okay is Simon and Garfunkel. It's unnecessary. It's moronic. And anyone with a freshman-level geography course can see the flaw in that film. Why Californians don't laugh out loud really surprises me. But if you don't laugh at this movie, well, you worship it. Right past the stop sign. For instance, if Benjamin had bothered to get gas here at the stop, then he would not have run out of gas and he wouldn't have to sprint the last two miles to get to the church. That type of bullshit is meant to be fun, but it's so glaringly contradictory, it just makes you shake your head. I'd be willing to buy the comedy of it if my patience wasn't already tested in the previous hour. I'm already not trusting the premise of this movie, so I'm not going to trust the finale. So there's so much going on now that's it's it's moving really fast. Ben is going to run out of gas. He's going to sprint to the church and he'll be running to the camera. But you can see how far away he is from the camera. So he's so far away that it looks like Surtees is using a telephoto lens. So that will shorten the distance to the camera a lot, but you'll lose image quality. And it looks like he's hauling ass. He's really running. Remember, he's a track star, right? He's a trained runner, but the camera is so far away, it makes it look like he's not getting anywhere. And it's almost like he's running in place. So the effect is that he's not going very far. In fact, you could interpret that to mean that he's not going anywhere in life. And if anything makes sense in this movie, and not much does, that makes sense. And man, that really does not look like Santa Barbara. The wedding looks a lot like Ben's graduation party. There's all these old people there. The small elite, the 1%, if you will. They've worked their whole lives through hard times to get where they want to be in life. And here's this kid coming in saying, fuck you, throws a cross around and steals the virgin from the sacrificial altar. At the beginning of the movie, you get the idea that Ben feels like he's making a mess of his life and he wants to turn that around. And now look at him here. What kind of mess is he in now? Did he turn that shit around or did he only make it worse? And why the fuck does Elaine all of a sudden drop her resistance, shout his name and take off with him? That's a stagecoach ending. That's the hand of God coming in and making everything all right. And that makes zero sense. Notice Mrs. Robinson isn't going to wear her animal print anymore because she's already devoured her prey. 
The point is the impressive nature of the scene is to convey this overdriving urge, this desire to set things right, that Ben is transformed, transubstantiated, if you will, in this church. And now he knows what he wants and who gives a shit if Elaine doesn't know what she wants. He's going to marry her and that will be that. In Elaine's point of view, other than her believing this false rape charge from her mother, well, we never really get into that. Her opinion on what Ben wants to do doesn't matter. We never hear it. All we hear is, you get it, her screaming their name like they're having sex in a church. Elaine, slow walk up, hold the close up, primal scream. Wait for it. Turns in her mind. Parents losing her shit. Carl losing his shit. Ben. And this is where Mrs. Robinson screams out, it's too late. And Elaine shouts back, not for me. And this is our first indication that Elaine knows exactly what happened to her mother and that she's not going to repeat her mother's mistakes and her mother should be happy about this. But instead, she's absolutely livid. She's jealous, in fact. She doesn't want Elaine to have a happy life because she didn't have one herself. Then Ben whacks Mr. Robinson. That's called the Oedipal Jubilee in a paper I read for this. Everyone talks about pounding the glass and his arms are bent, so it looks like a crucifix. But it wasn't meant to do that. It was just the pastor of the church saying, please be careful of the glass and whatever. But it's on film, so it's game. And that plus the crucifix is swinging around. How can you read that as anything other than anti-religion? It's a one-two punch delivered by a couple of Jewish guys criticizing American society, which is fair. How can you not read that as anti-religion or anti-Christian? And do you get the feeling that this is like Jesus driving the moneylenders away from the temple. That kind of makes sense. Hoffman is Jewish after all. Doing something like that to your parents, it's like Sidney Poitier slapping a white cop and in the heat of the night, or Jim Brown killing Germans in the end of the Dirty Dozen. Both of those are the same year. So the dramatic deployment of the runaway bride is further proof that The Graduate is a romantic comedy, as that is a trope commonly used in that genre since the 1930s. And you see it uh, even today, right? But it was also when it happened one night, the Philadelphia story, Morgan. So they made it. They escaped. They're on the bus. Congratulations. Yay. They don't know what they've done or why really or where they're going or what's going to happen. She's technically married, so they're going to have to get that annulled. And now Mrs. Robinson is Ben's mother-in-law. Mr. Robinson will probably be charging with assault. I'm sure that that's going to work out just fine. And what about her name? Does Elaine change her name to Ben's or is she going to keep Mrs. Robinson like a lot of new women do? So he'll still be fucking Mrs. Robinson? Pauline Kale hated this film. Finally, she and I agreed on something. And this film is perfect, and I mean that. The shots are cutting edge, even for today. The taboo subject is the plot and it ends on uncertainty, uncertainty in life and what we do and what we want, what we want to do. But one thing Ben and Elaine know is they want to be together and that is the start of something. Love is the only salvageable thing in this film. The rest is shit. How can you point to your parents and call them alcoholics when you yourself are a drug addict? How can you call them oversexed when you take part in orgies and free love? How can you call them materialistic with their house and their furs when you get an Ivy League education at their expense and drive an Alfa Romeo that they bought for you? How can you call them corrupt when you've never worked a single day in your life and hang around the pool all summer 
trying to find yourself. You call yourself distracted youth? I call you pathetic youth. Your impressive film and your trendy soundtrack does not hide your misogynistic urges and your eroding values. Not for me. Thanks for hanging out with me while we watched The Graduate. I hope you found this interesting whether you watched the commentary on in your home or you just listened in your car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. And that's me. You can find me, my podcast, my books, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com. The Super 70 Podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail. You can find her on soundcloud.com. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at thatdylandavis and find my books on amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis, and next time we'll meet at Fat Freddy's.